and welcome back to another episode of Women Talk Tech. Today I am joined by Louisa, Director of Talent and Organisation at MVP Factory. I am really excited about this episode as we cover a really important topic, neurodiversity and the workplace. Now I must admit it's a topic which I'm continuously educating myself on, but I was really excited when Louisa agreed to come on on the podcast and discuss this topic with me. Louisa shares her own personal experience and what she thinks we can do more of to ensure women are diagnosed earlier. She also shares her thoughts on how we can create a working environment which is emotionally and psychologically safe, as well as her advice for those managing people with neurodiversity. Such a great conversation. So, Louisa, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Yes, hi, I'm super happy to be on your podcast. My name is Louisa and I am first and foremost, of course, like myself, but professionally speaking, spoken in the way we met, I am the director of talent organization at MEP Factory. MEP Factory is um, a company, a venture product builder, and it's based in Berlin. Um, and there I take care of all things recruiting, HR operations and organizational development. And I joined them roughly 3.5 years ago, which kind of also coincides with the topic we talk about today and my, my own journey throughout um, realization that neurodivergency is a topic for me. Apart from that, I'm a mom of two, having two girls, and this also keeps me busy, of course. Uh, it also contributes to the to the journey of learning more about how my brain functions and how their brains work as well and other passions for me are tra- training and coaching um, currently pursuing a new work facilitator certification to be able to help more companies and teams to find out which ways of working fit them the, the most no matter what the rest says yeah yeah amazing and um I would love to know a bit more about what DNI means to you, um, because I do think, you know, after doing this podcast, um, everyone views it very differently. It's such a broad topic, and I think everyone has their their kind of preferred way to go about it. Um, but for you, Louisa, what does DNI mean to you, and why is it important? Let me try. I don't have a super sharp definition for myself yet. Um, of course, there's like the first and obvious layer um, where diverse teams create better results um, and where people feel like they belong, they can also um, contribute more to what the company actually wants to achieve, right? But I think that's the very first layer and the reason why every company needs to address the topic and be focused on, on creating an own identity in that on, in that sense. Um, but what's my personal standpoint or take on that is the word that I mentioned before, right? Belonging. Um, I want to participate or contribute to building workplaces where people can come the way they are without having to fit in to molds that were created, not even by the C-level of a company, but by an yeah. old economy. Um, and therefore, like, let's say, waste energy on on masking and on pretending and on fitting in instead of using the energy and uh, creating things they're like, they're proud of or they can identify with. Um, so creating a workspace where everyone feels heard, like not only seen, but also feels listened to and feels like they can contribute in the way they are, um, their best possible selves and not have to change too much. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Like I said, I think I, I can really relate to that. I think it's being who you are and coming as you are and not having to change to a certain mold, um, whether that's, you know, gender, background, education, I think it's just about being who you are and, you know, being happy to, to kind of represent that as well. Maybe adding one thing, um, because I don't want to focus too much also on the individual individual parts of DINE, right? Um, it is, of course, the responsibility as an employer and as a company, and as an HR person to facilitate this process, right? Because, um, 
the company decides to be a bigger organism. So it's our job to make sure we have a diverse team where people can actually belong, right? Um, so it's not on the, like the workload, it shouldn't be on the end of, I don't know, um, queer people or people of color or neurodivergent people, rather than us as a company finding a framework where the safe space is provided. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I think we all can do a lot more to make sure that that space is safe for whatever, you know, that, you know, you are as a person. Um, yeah, like I said, really excited to kind of get stuck into the today's topic. Um, I must admit, it's one which I know little about, I'm being completely honest. So I'm excited to kind of learn from you today and, and kind of learn about the topic in general. Um, but yeah, maybe we can get stuck into it. Of course, today's topic really is about neurodiversity and the workplace and how to best go about it, you know, how we can make this this workplace safe for those, you know, um, going through such. Um, so yeah, Louisa, maybe just help me here um what has your experience been you know in the working world um you know going through this topic like I said I'm I'm not sure how to best word it so yeah please do correct me if I do say something really incorrect or really offensive let's let's start there maybe maybe if, uh, some yeah. steps for the first um I have ADHD um and therefore whenever I talk about this topic it does have a certain like drift into that direction. I know much more about this than I know about dyslexia or, or autism or other neurodiversities. Um, just so we're clear about this. I, I still like learn about this a lot myself. I'm not a professional psychologist or anything. Um, so it might have this this impact or this, this nuance, let's say. Um, but as you already said, it's about neurodiversity. And in the end, neurodiversity is all brains. Like um, yeah. every brain is very, very unique, very different. Uh, it's like the fingerprints of a person are unique the same way every brain functions differently. Um, so new diversity always means all the same way that diversity includes all people and doesn't ex it doesn't exclude cis straight white men, right? Even if they sometimes think that. Um, so new diversity means all brains. And then we just distinguish between neurotypical brains. So the brains that work in the ways that the average brain works at or in. And yeah. we have neurodivergent people. So a neurodivergency is where the brain diverts from the normal. Um, and this includes um, like a variety of, of, of mental disabilities or mental pattern, like neuro neurological patterns like ADHD and ADD, um, the autism spectrum, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, and such things, as well as Tourette syndrome, as well as schizophrenia um, or depression and anxiety. Um, in the workplace, when we when we talk about neurodivergence in the workplace, we often focus on like let's call it the big five of um, autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and dyscalculia, um, because we still look at it from a very very privileged point of view of people that are able to participate in the workplace. Um, many people who suffer from mental disabilities might not even be able to like people who are on the autism spectrum um, might not be able to work in like one of the standard companies or people with heavy ADHD might not be able to follow a normal job. Same goes for people with schizophrenia. Um, so this we don't even include there. Interesting. Yeah, that's so true. Because I, I totally, you know, there could be so many other, like you mentioned, the big five, there could be so many others, which we don't talk enough about, um, just because those people aren't represented in the workplace as much. So yeah, that and I guess, you know, from your side, what has your experience been in the working world as someone with ADHD? How have you navigated the working world? Any challenges? Yeah, share, shine a light on how you found it. 
So it's, of course, like a highly individual story or experience, um, but I'm one of, um, or let's start with one number. Um, if you look at women with ADHD, it's a um, group of people um, that is heavily undiagnosed or underdiagnosed. So 75% of women who have ADHD do not know about that. Um, and I was one of them for the longest time. So I also only learned or found out about this like around COVID times, so two to three years ago, um, because stress levels were so high back then and the complexity of the world became so high and intense that symptoms became more more apparent. Um, so for the longest time of my work life, I wasn't aware that I'm a person that works with ADHD, right? <laughs> so the past years have been a lot of like realizing, but also unlearning of things that I've been doing. Um, so when we look into the like, biggest symptom groups that most people with ADHD share is like this stuff like attention to detail or ability to focus on something that you didn't choose for yourself or on the other side, working really well under pressure, um, under time pressure as well and switching contexts very, very often. Um, this was something I always tried to like unconsciously try to make my job. Um, and I often, of course, like looking back, I realized I felt exhausted many like often because yeah. the way to filter information just works differently than to let's call it normal people or normal brains um, without being aware that this is happening. So I was thinking like, why am I tired and other people aren't? Um, yes, this might be because I work full time and raise tiny kids, but also because I'm not filtering as well as others. Um, so, for example, I have a million tabs open at all times, but all of these open tabs um, contain open tasks. So I would do one task and think, ah, wait, in order to finish this, I need information from this tab over there. So let me go to this tab over there. And then I open the next tab and I'm like, oh, my God, there's something I haven't finished yet. Let me quickly finish this before I forget. And then switching to the next tab and like this happens over and over again. Then I, after 15 of these tabs, I, of course, have forgotten already what I did in the beginning, right? So this cruel brain kind of mentality is a big part that costs energy because if you switch contexts, you lose a lot of momentum. Um, or in meetings, giving people the feeling I'm not listening well enough because I change topics or because like I'm fidgeting around with my hands or with toys or on the screen, uh, which is better focused. So all these things are part of the work life. Um, I'm extremely lucky because my teams were always super accommodating and flexible as well. Um, in my current role, I also have the freedom to to shape the way we work together and the way we communicate and the way, like the awareness we have for each other. So I never felt like I'm actually struggling. And now yeah. I'm learning where actually, like where it should have felt like struggling, if I'm making sense. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Because I guess for most of your career, you were unaware you had you know ADHD so it's not like you had to navigate the world with ADHD then um until now right I mean you mentioned you you discovered this during COVID and I'm sure there are probably many people that discovered lots during COVID and I think that in itself to when we were you know somewhat stuck at home we were so highly sensitive to everything around us what did I mean what was it that during COVID made you think actually this isn't right if you don't mind me asking totally um my friends um, one of the things that I now know is people with neurodivergencies tend to move towards each other because we don't like, we feel less misunderstood with people whose brains are also kind of 
twisted, let's call it that way. Um, so I have friends who are diagnosed and um, we were just talking and at one point we were talking about the jukebox that I feel I have in my head. So when somebody says something and it contains a word of a song, the song goes off in my head and I start singing it as well. Um, most of my team members do that as well. Like at work, I have colleagues who do the same thing. So our desk island is sometimes a bit chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> my friend looked at me and she was like, you do know that's an ADHD symptom, right? I'm like, no, I didn't. And then we kept talking about her kids who are, who are diagnosed and then more and more came came to to light. And then I talked to my best friend from high school and she was like, Louisa, I thought you knew. We've met 16 years ago. And the first sentence you said to me back then when we were 15 years old was, um, I am talking so fast because I need to follow up with my thoughts. Because like in German, my talking speed is much, much higher and nobody can understand me often. Um, and that was for her, like back then she knew, I knew that I had ADHD. Same was for another mom from like of a, a mom of a kid in school um, who got diagnosed when he was in first grade. And then in, in, when the kids were in third grade, I told, like, I told her, hey, I, I'm realizing this right now. And she was like, Luisa. When I met you three years ago, I was so happy to see a successful professional grown-up with ADHD. So I thought it's so oh, clear. Wow. <laughs> so everyone thought you'd been diagnosed already before you even knew yourself. Yeah, because apparently I'm very textbook ADHD, whatever that might mean to people. Um, oh, yeah. Also, like again, what what helps me now in the workplace is the second. It's like when you have a broken arm and you have like a cast around your arm and you walk through the streets of London. Suddenly, everybody has like a cast around their arm or their leg or whatever. Um, so, since I know, I also look at employees or new hires differently and realize we are many, yeah. <laughs> right? When you look into numbers in the workplace or when you look at numbers in general, um, the world, like the global population, ha um, you would say like 20% of the global population is neurodivergent, either autism, ADHD, dyslexia, all yeah. these things. Right? Um, this also means that if you look at a normal average company, you can assume that 20% of the team members of the employees are neurodivergent. Either they know it or they don't. Right. Um and if you have like a smaller company um, with a certain business system uh, where it's like a fast paced environment, tech world, right? The tech world is full of companies with fast paced environments, um, very demanding expectations, um, high pressure, um, lots of like newness and new, new contexts and new industries. Um, and there, if you have people with a new divergency in the, like in the leadership team or in the HR teams that do recruiting, um, without them being diagnosed, then there is like a huge unconscious bias that's create, that gets created. Yeah. And then we just hire more of us. At one yeah. point, you can, it can happen that you have a team that is more neurodivergent than neurotypical. Um, it doesn't have to happen, of course, but that's something that, of course, especially in tech world, is not rarely the case. Yeah. And I'm going to have to ask this because I noticed that you're now using the word neurodivergent. Um, that's different to say neurodivergent, not different, but neurodiversity. How would you just, is, I guess someone is neurodivergent as opposed to someone has a neurodiversity. Which way? Oh, wait, again, neurodiversity is all brains. Uh, all brains. Every brain belongs to neurodiversity and then we have neurotypical and then we have neurodivergent brains. So uh, whatever is a new divergency um and then it also of course depends a lot how people like label themselves right P some people yeah. enjoy like using that label because it makes things so much easier um some people 
um, except for them, it's a disability. For some people say, no, it's not a disability, disability to at all. It's just a way that my brain functions. Some people buy into the whole superpower narrative. Some people don't want that because it doesn't show the challenges that we go through on a daily basis. The most neutral term um, is a neurodivergent person. Perfect. I, I had to ask because, like I said, I, I don't want to make the mistake or say the wrong thing. So, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, going back to it, you mentioned that 75% of women uh, with ADHD are undiagnosed. Um, and you yourself, you were somewhat undiagnosed for most of your most of your life, most of your career. How do you think we can make it easier for women to get diagnosed earlier? What do we need to do to change this? I think from like workplace perspective, that's hard because we can't yeah. provide, like we're not the ones that provide access to healthcare. Um, we can help um, with providing information, right? And making it easier, even if you're not officially diagnosed to to find or to adjust normal processes to, to how you like them better or how you can hack them. Um, it is completely fine, for example, or it's something that the person's important uh, have to acquire words. It is really okay for you to not be officially diagnosed and just like be self-diagnosed because the access to healthcare is so bad in most of the countries, um, especially for women and especially for women of color or for queer women. Um, like the second a person ticks more than one of the diversity, diversity boxes, it becomes more difficult to get diagnosed. Um, also, it is a heavily, heavily white discussed um, topic still, right? Um, so for example, people, people of color in the workplace, women of color in the workplace, they have to mask even more. Um, so they get even less access to, to the diagnosis or to therapy, for example. So what can we do as, a, as, as people teams or as companies is to, again, A, provide information, um, create room for education, um, be accessible for, for conversations when people start realizing and they might want to come out. Um, for example, queer people, who are also neurodivergent often decide to not come out as neurodivergent as well because they already fight the first fight. Why adding a second one on top? Um, especially as neurodivergency still comes with a huge stigma of not being able to work well, even if it's often the opposite. Um, so making sure your your team is very approachable for, for these conversations and provide safe spaces, but also is happy to alter things like internal communication make this more like neuro inclusive um for for every employee or how do we do goal setting how do you, how do we do feedback talks all these things if we just follow the book are made for neurotypical brains but neurodivergent brains need some alterations that are very very easy to do um and that's where we can help the most yeah yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Like you said, right. In, in terms of having to somewhat come out, some people don't want to, some people are really happy to. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, in some conversations when you somewhat feel like you're, you're kind of not coming out, but you're saying to, you now have two diversities. It's kind of like, which one do I, which one do I just suffer with and which one do I kind of come out with? So yeah, it's really interesting when you mentioned those things about actually having these conversations and, and if you want to have them or not. Yeah, and then I think also, and it also circles back to the first question, what does DI and E mean to me? Um, we're not doing this for the few, but for the many, right? So the second you start being more neuroinclusive, you also, like, your neurotypical employees also benefit from that. Um, it's nothing that is only good for um, your female engineer who also has autism or something, right? Um, so that's also just an important thing. Even if we cannot 
push people to come out. We can make it easier, but we cannot force anybody. Um, it's still good to do these things and make that take that step, these steps um, in case somebody new diversion joins you later on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, from I know that when we when we first spoke, it was really interesting to kind of look into the, the somewhat symptoms um, that are very similar to other, I guess, life experiences. You know, I know you mentioned that women start having kids who choose to breastfeed. Those hormones are somewhat very similar to an ADHD symptom. Um, imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. sorry, sorry for interrupting you. Just like just to be careful here. Please correct um, me. Please correct me. <laughs> I'm not a not not a person with with background in medicine or or anything. I studied a bit of psychology, but um, there has been studies that has shown that if a woman has a baby and then breastfeeds, um, the amount of estrogen um, covers up ADHD symptoms, um, and then when the estrogen like levels drop again, um, this end your world became more complex and more stressful with an infant and maybe a job, then the symptoms increase again. It's the same, for example, for your cycle. Um, like um, in yeah. the part of your cycle where your estrogen levels rise, you're like high performer and you might, might not even notice your symptoms. This, like the week before your period starts, your estrogen levels drop. Um, so the dopamine gets regulated in a worse way. And then like the dopamine is the main issue for people with ADHD because it's not regulated properly. And then the week is just a big, big fat ass mess. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, no, honestly, thank you so much for correcting me. Because like I said, I'm, I was definitely going to say something wrong in this. So yeah, it's really, really good to have you here. Um, but I mean, from, from my understanding, right, all of those things, it's, it's quite hard then to differentiate when is the right time to, to speak out about it and to kind of speak about it. So I guess, how can those symptoms, how can we actually, how can we get the diagnosis, not somewhat earlier, but how can we help people to notice it in themselves? I mean, how do we change that? I would still go back to try to reduce the stigma, um, especially in Germany. I'm not entirely sure. Like the UK is further along there already, um, but Germany is a bit of a medieval landscape when it comes to mental health still. Um, but here, ADHD is still heavily labeled as the thing that young boys have. And when they run around too much and stuff like that, and young girls do not get diagnosed, um, one, of the th one of the reasons for that are gender stereotypes like as a girl in school, maybe you rem remember that from your own time back then, you're told much, much faster than a boy that you have to sit still, that you have to be helpful, that you have to be silent or calm and kind and all these things. So for many, many women, um, ADHD, like the hyperactivity part for it, um, isn't e either isn't as, as strong like outwardly or it's entirely turned inwardly. So yeah. ADHD daydream a lot um, or read very, very fast and very, very much. Um, I always wiggled holes into my shoes because the toes could wiggle without the teacher telling me off for it, right? Um, so girls are not diagnosed, um, and this means they don't get they don't have the chance to build healthy coping mechanisms early on in life. Yeah, yeah. it's somewhat those symptoms are somewhat suppressed very early on in your kind of education because the symptoms are seen to be quite boisterous or you know related to naughty schoolboys. you know I remember that actually there was always one kid in the class that could never sit still and 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 even if there was a a girl who was in the exact same they were just taught to to just kind of suppress that 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 symptom so to speak if it was so one thing that we can how we can help make diagnosis easier is to just also like look at all the kids from like this perspective like not saying all the kids have that but saying okay it can have different shapes and also knowing things like um, 
for especially ADHD, but also autism and the others are um, inheritable. So if you have ADHD, the chance that one of your kids has it like 40, 40 to 50%. Um, so now it's, for example, my task to already acknowledge that my kids might have that even if the teachers won't allow for a diagnosis or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. And I guess, you know, going back to the kind of working world, because I think it's really interesting to look at, okay, how can we make the working environment, I guess, more safer, more inclusive for for, for kind of these sorts of um, symptoms? And, and how can we help people? So I mean, for you, Louisa, what does a safe um, environment, both emotionally and also psychologically environment look like um, for you? Mm. Again, I think from, from the latter end, emotionally and psychologically safe, it's the way people talk to each other. Um, and yeah. talking already starts with, like, let's start with internal communication, which already starts with emails or Slack and Microsoft Teams messages, right? Um, it's very easy to make this more neuroinclusive. inclusive say, um, if you have long policy texts, make sure you break them up in different paragraphs or um, print more letters bold or allow for um, browser extensions that help with, like, help people with dyslexia to change the font of, of yeah. letters, right? There's a specific dyslexia font, for example. Or um, um, things like um, using more emojis or um, when you write emails, um, what, what I, when, I, when I try, like I try to remember this all the time, but I sometimes still forget. Um, when you do the subject lines in emails, you can have a disclaimer in there, like before the subject line comes, say um, just FYI or please take action or urgent or something like that so people can filter faster like they don't have to open all the emails to work through them and then get distracted and get lost or overwhelmed with the amount of information just like have disclaimers everywhere when the text gets too long like what yeah. is this text for um same goes for providing for new hires providing an office floor plan before the first day like before they enter the office building have, have them know where they can go where they should go um, have the agenda ready for the first day before they, they mostly the only thing to know is be there at 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah. And social anxiety is big and <laughs> one of the biggest things in us, right? So provide as many social cues as possible and not don't expect that people float through these normally, like small talk. I hate small talk. I can't do that. Um, so I rather completely overshare in a loose conversation when somebody feels completely weird about that, but, but I don't navigate these situations well. Um, so don't expect from your coworkers to do these water cooler talks all the time. And if you have yeah. something where you realize they struggle with that, um, it can be a help if their lead says, hey, listen, um, in your role, we expect 5% of your time to go into social activities and then they can, can turn this into a task and just put it on their list or to-do list. Like, did I have so small talk today okay I did it once I can be fine now and then also respect this boundary and not push for more don't assume they are rude um things like um feedback conversations um now we are again focusing on or trying to be inclusive there um feedback is something that's heavily impacted by the relationship you have with a person or by making assumptions how a person defines a certain word um so if you always go back on the meta level and explain what you said and why you said it or which communication method you just used it's much easier for for neurodivergent people sometimes to look behind this whole social courtesy yeah noise um people with adhd for example have something and not all of them of course right but many have something called um rsd like rejection sensitivities dysphoria 
which means we have this filter where negative feedback um, feels extremely negative, neutral feedback feels negative, and positive feedback feels like, ah, no, this can't be true. They don't mean that. <laughs> um, wow. And then providing this, hey, so the, what I'm saying right now is meant as a positive feedback. Please hear me. You've done great in this. Or if you provide negative feedback, always be constructive, always provide, hey, this what you've done there that was wrong and it sucked you can like it can be direct right yeah. but this is how we can fix it or this is how you can fix it don't stop at hey there you failed wow. <laughs> um, but it's also again true for all people everybody feels better if they receive constructive feedback and not only yeah that was yeah. wrong there you but failed I, yeah but I think being a being aware of of these things is so important because I think we could we could continue as is, and you know some of the things you mentioned are so important, especially feedback because I think yes it could be the case that we receive negative feedback and we're like oh my gosh that was so negative, but also being aware that 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 person may experience that and and notice that from when you're giving the feedback is super important because then you can actually somewhat prevent that thought process happening or at least not as bad so to speak. So that's something we do um, in our company MVP factory. Um, the second somebody joins or within their first quarter, we have them go through a feedback training, knowing that all of them already went through a dozen of feedback trainings in their lifetime um, and oh, yeah. probably are annoyed by the two and a half hour block on their calendar. Um, but we make sure it focuses a lot on psychological safety. Um, there's a lot of conversation about what makes you feel safe and what makes you feel anxious. Um, how can you take care of another person's emotional safety even if it's not your responsibility everybody's responsible responsible for their own triggers bad experiences and everything um but you can help make them feel safe in terms yeah. of creating a good surrounding so we talk a lot about how to achieve that through feedback and how to give feedback in a way that makes everybody no matter which type of brain they have feel safe yeah. um and this also impacted a lot um, our communication styles already in the company yeah yeah and I know you kind of touched upon this uh just then but I guess managing people in this respect is super important and, and how to best go about it I guess in your opinion how can managers do better here um I know you mentioned there a lot about feedback but how, how can we encourage yeah because I'm sure it starts with the managers right it starts with how you that's how you work with people um for me the key here is over communication like asking and demanding also from the employee like what do you need how do you need me to lead you um i'm a big big fan of situa um, situational leadership um and not say hey i'm the lesser fair leader yeah you can't be because every employee needs something different from you um so you need to adjust to a situation to a person so for example at the beginning what you can do if you have a new hire or if you have someone who just realized they and came out to you as neurodivergent um or came forward that they are um say okay what do you need from me like how many check-ins do you need with me more or less um do you need more deadlines or less deadlines um how precise does the task package need to be for you like what is your what is the manual to to be successful with you um for example um i always need deadlines and i cannot fool myself i cannot give myself a wrong deadline so i need others to give me a wrong deadline <laughs> yeah oh yeah because I will not do something before the deadline is not approaching, um, or if it's or if it kicks me into hyper focus because something is super interesting, sure. But most of the tasks on a daily basis are not always new and interesting. They just have to get done right, so they need deadlines for me personally. Um, like knowing these things, like what are motivators for new diversion people can be helpful to adjust your leadership style. Um, 
yeah, the same goes for how often do you need feedback? Um, is it yeah. okay if it just comes up when something happens or like also do you, like, do you need more reassurance? People have to be okay with claiming reassurance needs. Um, it is okay if you want to be praised, even if it feels like you're fishing for compliments. It's completely fine. But sometimes your boss needs to know that because they're not used to this. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And I mean, I could be completely wrong here, but I do think I, I might be right here. But I do think when it comes to this this topic, I do think it's all about understanding. And I think probably a lot of managers lack the understanding of such topics and how to best go about it. Uh, I mean, from your from your experience, would you would you say that it's it's important that, that managers do do their own research? They have a good understanding. I mean, I see it as important because, of course, how can you help people if you don't know what they need help with? But yeah, do, you know, on the understanding topic, you know, for managers now that are in their team and they're thinking, OK, I should probably increase my understanding of, of this. Where should they start? What should they be doing to help with this? Always ask the people who they think are like a part of the community. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, fine line, right? You cannot go out there and say, hey, you, I think you have this and that. Yes, yeah, <laughs> don't do that. Please <laughs> don't. <laughs> um, it's also very difficult as an HR person because you can, it's not your place to, to go to a person and say, hey, maybe you want to look into that. Um, now that you're in your mid-30s or in your early, like late 20s or something. Um, but yes, of course, always ask the person that, you, that you're leading because symptoms are so diverse and so different for, for every person. And also their coping mechanisms are completely different um, from time to time. So that's the first thing. But then also, of course, um, checking in with, with your people teams to see what resources can they offer. Um, maybe are there awareness groups or meetups? There are great books and blogs by now out there. Um, I personally appreciate the existence of TikTok a lot when it comes to learning. Um, if you make it through the bullshit content, there's really good content out there um, for people with <laughs> any emergency. Um, but that's always, I also, like, I personally um, admire that there are first ADHD coaches or autism coaches out there. Um, I think we need to be more. I think there needs to be more training on this topic. But it gets easier to get information even if you're not one of the neurodivergent people. So first step is asking the person you work with, how do you need to be led? Um, how can you con contribute to you being able to unleash your potential? Yeah, um, yeah. And then if the person says, hey, these are things I struggle with, then the next step can be, okay, cool, let me check in with HR or the people team or let me read up on things. Um, like a great book that actually is UK, based, or not the book's not UK based, but the author is, is called A Hidden Force, Unlocking the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work by Ed, by Ed Thompson. It talks a lot about um, how to start creating awareness inside the teams as well. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I just think a good place to start is to actually understand what's what what's kind of going on so to speak and and understanding what that person maybe struggles with what they don't struggle with and and that will then of course help you manage that person better and help them to do better at work ultimately right we want people to do well at work we want people to like you said unleash their potential and without that understanding I think that's where we're going wrong for sure exactly thank you again for joining me thank you so much as well happy to continue the conversation whenever we feel like <laughs>